Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with jazz guitarist, educator, and music industry consultant Cameron Mazell. This very busy cat started his life off in St. Louis, Missouri, and these days he's a mainstay in New York City. His latest album is 2016's Negative Spaces, and he's logged a lot of time on albums, at venues, as a teacher, and all over the world doing his guitar magic. So get to know him and dig this interview, my friends. Cameron, thank you for taking some time to talk with me about your life and music, negative spaces, and some surprises in between. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. No, I, I appreciate you uh, wanting to have the conversation. Right on, man. So let's go ahead and start off here. I know that you're pretty clear about your schedule and what's going on with your life, but in your own words, tell me what's going on with you with your music life these days. You know, I I do this full-time, and... Part of being a full-time guitarist is playing all kinds of music, um, at least for me. And so I'm constantly, like, learning songs by all different artists and at the same time writing new music. I try to uh, sit down and, and write something, uh, at least finish a song every week. I've just lately, you know, I've been not... Uh, trying to, you know, say, okay, this song needs to be, it needs to sound like something I would play with my trio or sound like something I would play on solo guitar. It's just a melody and some chord changes and who knows what it's going to be like. And I'm, I'm realizing all the different music that I've been playing and learning for other artists, the influence it has on how I write and, you know, what's happening with... Um, you know, my new music, it's just, it becomes more and more diverse. And I, I don't know, it, it's interesting when you kind of uh, let yourself be a little bit free of, of any preconceived notion of what the music is supposed to sound like, you know. And I think that there's there's some of that comes across on uh, Negative Spaces, which was recorded, I mean, it was recorded a while ago, but it was kind of, this, you know, the start of this mindset of, you know, musically just being open to all the different kinds of stuff I like to play. You obviously feel good about the album. Take me into the studio. How did this project come about and how did you, you know, how did it all happen? Well, um, I'd released an album with, with the trio with Brad and Kenneth in 2010. And we, we worked on that, you know, we played out that music for a little bit over a year, but um, that album we had, been playing the music a lot before we recorded so once we kind of, I kind of just felt done with it and I spent several years writing music I don't know I had a ton of material to choose from for negative spaces and some of it ended I ended up using some stuff that was kind of written for different projects but you know I just felt like you know what man this is my music this is the song I like um I just want to do it so I got together with the guys a little bit before the recording session to rehearse, but we had not played the music as a group, you know, prior to that, which was a very different approach from what, what we had done in the past. I wanted it to be very fresh. I wanted, you know, them to have their own ideas kind of evolving so that, you know, it wasn't going to sound like some super uh, 
polished thing when we, when we went in. I wanted to have, you know, some raw energy. And, um, I mean, that's what we did. You know, we had a couple of rehearsals and, and recorded the music, and we just tried to keep everything nice and uh, pr- pretty simple in terms of, um, like, improvis- our improvisations where we focused on being melodic and, and everything serving the song and the composition and um, the vibe of, of each piece is a little bit different. And I had a, an idea of how it was all going to fit together. I don't know if everybody saw what that was going in, but uh, I feel like we definitely were able to accomplish it by the end. So let me ask you this. Where, where were you born and raised? I was born in St. Louis, and I spent, um, I mean, raised there, spent the first 18 years of my life in St. Louis. What was it about, you know, it's a blues town. Um, yeah. I was, I was there a year ago to try to find some jazz, and I just could not find anything going on other than blues. So that's the funny thing about the Kansas City St. Louis split. There tends to be blues and jazz here, but it seems like um, the hockey team's named well, I can tell you that, because it's yeah. a blue town. <laughs> so yeah. l- let me ask you this. What was it about your growing up years that lent you to get into music and more specifically into jazz? My mom was a dance teacher, and when I was three years old, she put, I mean, she put all of my, I've got an older sister and a younger brother. We all were in dance classes from the beginning. So at three years old, I'm learning my left foot from my right foot to, you know, some record that was, you know, big band music or, or like, I mean, essentially, you know, jazz music. So that, and I did a lot of tap dancing, actually tap dance until I was like 16. And a lot of the music used with tap dance is kind of comes from the same place as jazz and, and the rhythms. Uh, I had a I had a jazz teacher one time say, you know, Charlie Parker rhythms just sound like tap dancing. And it was like, yeah, it totally does. You know, the uh, bebop rhythms are exactly what, you know, Gregory Hines or, or somebody might sound like. So that kind of rhythmic feel and, and exposure to the music, I, I think, kind of set up the foundation for what I love about music like this. But it wasn't, I mean, I started playing guitar later, and, and I really didn't get into playing jazz on guitar until high school. You know, after, of course, I started playing guitar, and I was, like, playing rock music and Metallica, you know, when I was 13 years old. And then there was this article by the guitarist in Metallica in some guitar magazine talking about uh, how he had been listening to John Coltrane and Miles Davis and how it changed the way he was trying to to solo, and I was like, hey, yeah. I should I should check that out, and so I went and bought. Um, it was just like a comp. It was it was called Miles and Coltrane. It was sort of like a compilation CD with a lot of that uh, late fifties uh, Miles stuff, and and I was like, oh, I see. And so I, I over the next like couple of years ended up trading in all of my you know nineties rock CDs and Metallica CDs and got just started building my jazz CD collection, uh, you know, eventually got kind of blue. And then from there, it's like you you say, oh, uh, I got to check out more Cannonball Adderley. And, oh, I got to check out more Wynton Kelly. And you go check out a Wynton Kelly or an album that Wynton Kelly's on. And, oh, there's West Montgomery. And so you start, you know, I started getting exposed to stuff that way, just by kind of following the discographies of the guys on Kind of Blue. And the, then it was, it, I was kind of stuck in the jazz world. 
Now, I, you know, the thing you're, you're mentioning about St. Louis not having much of a jazz scene, the, what's funny is I, I've noticed that when I've gone back to visit, there is, there is some jazz there. Um, I've still got friends in St. Louis that play, but in the 90s, there was sort of this swing revival. Um, you know, I don't know if you remember, you know, people were go swing dancing and oh yeah, all that was getting big. And, and uh, you know, I used to go swing dancing with my wife, who you know, who was a dancer. And so yeah, I mean, we had a great time. But I, I actually played in a couple swing bands with some guys that were older than me, who were you know jazz musicians. And of course, having a swing band, you got to have a horn section. And so I had these guys that were sort of I don't know. Uh, yeah, I was the kid in the band, and they're kind of giving me advice along the way. Um, at, they played in a big band at BB's, uh, BB's Jazz Blues and Soup. I don't know. Did you ever know Keith Ellis? Uh, yes, trombone yes. player. Yeah, he uh-huh. played in that band, and um, you know, really a great guy for the jazz scene in St. Louis. It was really a, a tragedy when he passed away. Um, I think he was in his 40s when he when he passed away, but. You know, th- those guys kind of help me understand what, what happens as a jazz musician, you know, trying to make a living as a jazz musician. And I, I don't know. It, it was really – I was very lucky to work with people like that when I was a kid. That kind of leads into my next question, which, you know, the real-world experience is invaluable. But from a formal educational standpoint, what kind of formal education did you have and what did you learn about the music industry? I went to school at the University of North Texas and studied jazz guitar there. And then uh, about uh, halfway through, I transferred, like in my junior year, I transferred to Indiana University. And um, at Indiana, actually when I got there, they'd just gotten rid of the undergrad jazz guitar program. I mean, I I learned a ton of great stuff at North Texas um, that I'm probably still unpacking to this day in my brain. And I learned a ton of great stuff in Indiana. I mean, uh, David Baker is just a phenomenal educator and, uh, or was, uh, you know, another, another very sad loss to, you know, the jazz industry when David Baker passed away earlier this year. People, cause kids ask me all the time, you know, should I go to school to study jazz? And I think that it's important to do that because you, you, you spend so much time practicing. It's the, it's the only time in your life where, like eight hours of practice a day is possible and it's pretty necessary, you know? So, so that was really important. And then the other thing was just playing with so many different types of musicians, many of whom are still very good friends of mine today. Um, in fact, Brad Whiteley, who's on uh, negative space is the keyboard player. He, him and I met at Indiana and are, you know, he's one of my best friends. The formal education is totally important to, you know, get your, get the music stuff together, you know, build a strong foundation, but also just with meeting people and um, building your network. Speaking of networks, you've moved on to New York City. What has it been like to go to such, the, the, the jazz mecca on the planet and to get immersed in that environment? What has that been like for you? Well, you know, it's it's kind of scary, you know. I think everybody will tell you that. I came here with no job, you know, my wife and I moved here. We had nothing lined up. We just knew we wanted to be here. You know, just paying rent for the first year was difficult. 
And, uh, I mean, I, you know, had a job selling sofa beds. I had a job selling office supplies. I, you know, had all these odd jobs. And I ended up landing in the, uh, a temp job in the music industry at Verve Records. And uh, that led to a full-time job. And everything. But the path that I took was essentially I need to just get a day job to pay my bill. It left me with less time to go out and pursue music as much as I would have liked. So the time I was focusing on music, I was, you know, working on my stuff a lot. You know, kind of, I had been playing in, uh, before I moved to New York, my band was like an eight-piece ensemble, and there's just no way I was going to be able to organize something like that in New York. So I was kind of reworking my tunes and writing new stuff for a trio setting, which just is a lot more feasible in the city. But, you know, I didn't, I did some jam sessions. The, that whole scene is kind of its own world where you can go out and meet different players and, uh, you know, kind of get schooled on the, on the bandstand a little bit. I didn't do, didn't do as much of that as I think some people do, but I was, I was playing with my network of friends from college a lot and, Everything I'd been through in college, trying to book gigs and trying to meet people, you know, from transferring from one school to the next, I just did the exact same thing when I got to New York. Worked with the people I knew, um, you know, hustled for my own gigs, just worked my way into the scene that way, as opposed to doing all the, the jam sessions. You know, and, and everything's worked out pretty well. You've had five albums as a leader. You're, you know, you're a freelance guitarist. You're an educator, music industry consultant, run a record label. How have all of these come together for you to make you a whole music organism? That's A. And B, how have you grown over the years? So the way it all came together is almost by accident. You know, this, like I said, I got this temp job at the record label and it turned out that I was pretty good at what they needed me to do, which was uh, product. I was doing production, which is kind of like a taskmaster slash organizer slash attention to detail sort of guy. Um, and so the fact that I loved jazz and, you know, loved paying attention to who was on what record and who wrote what tune and, you know, I just totally absorbed all this information we were digitizing music uh, so that, you know, some Johnny Hodges album that was out of print because you just don't sell that many Johnny Hodges CDs. Yeah. But, you know, we were it was at the time where you wanted to get stuff on iTunes, which was a new store. So, you know, for me to be able to dig through all these old, you know, Johnny Hodges or like deep Oscar Peterson catalog or whatever and, uh, you know, make sure that we had – um, all the information about the album correct, uh, you know, who played on it, what the tunes were, who wrote those tunes. And then you have to enter that information into this system that can, you know, digitize, it digitizes the music and, and associates the metadata, you know, all that information with those digital files. And then it's distributed out to everybody. But, you know, back in the day when you just make a record, it's just you put it on the the artwork, it's not going into any kind of system, you know what I mean? So all this stuff had to be digitized, and I was good at that, and I was good at proofreading artwork. And, um, you know, one of the things I still do, do today is just listen to uh, masters before 
uh, of albums for different record labels before they go to press just because I, you know, have listened to so many, so many of these things that I can be like, I can recognize when there's a, you know, any kind of little distortion or if something is unbalanced or whatever, when people just need an extra set of ears to listen to a master before they, they go to print. All those things just happened because it turned out I was kind of good at that. Um, yeah. I, you know, you, you, don't, you can't go to school for that kind of job. Um, yeah. And it didn't even exist when I was in school. You know what I mean? None of the, a lot of this stuff didn't exist uh, when I was in school. And actually, some of it doesn't, probably doesn't even exist now, you know, 10 years later. Um, so all of this stuff, you know, and the whole time I'm, when I'm at, a, at the record label, I'm thinking about what are some ways that I can apply this to my career as a musician. Um, which, you know, you've got to do because you, you're always grappling with the idea that, you know, I wanted to be a musician full time, but I also at the time needed the, you know, needed the job to make ends meet. So trying to make it all make sense, you know, I, I, I just talked to everybody that, that would take some time to tell me about what they did, you know, the lawyer for the label or the art director or a designer, you know, or the the press assistant, you know, whatever. Everybody had information that they could help me to understand. And not that they were doing anything for me other than just teaching me about what they did. Um, so that led to, uh, I mean, I, I left, I left Verve to pursue music full time, but even after I left Verve, I, you know, the music industry has been shrinking and, uh, a lot of people have lost their jobs, unfortunately. But every now and then, projects come up where they just need somebody to help, you know, with that end, you know, that sort of uh, scheduling aspect of the the project, and you know, who's available that has experience doing all this stuff. Well, it's, it's usually me because I don't have, I otherwise don't have a day job. That's kind of continued for me, just because I happen to be available and I'm I'm good at it and I've worked with a lot of people who who know they can rely on me. I mean, I think that musically I there's sort of this change that maybe took place around the time I was, you know, was about 30 and like I kind of stopped caring what people thought about my music or or me in general. And you know, there's, I mean, ever since college, you go to, you get to college and everybody kind of labels everybody else. Okay, this guy plays like that, this guy plays like that. And, and you change so much, you know what I mean? You're going to grow as a musician and a player throughout your life, but especially in your 20s. And you just, I don't know, you get, it's easy to get caught up on what people, um, think of you, you know, or, or how they, assign some sort of characteristic to your playing. So there was a time where I was trying really hard to be a bebop guitar player. And I think at some point I just realized, you know what? That's just not what my strength is. I love the music, but there are so many guys that are so much better at that, you know, at playing bebop guitar that it doesn't matter. It's okay if I don't do it. It's okay if, if my music doesn't, you know, incorporate 
certain elements of, of traditional jazz vocabulary because jazz really is, is a process. You know what I mean? If you think about how you play music, you know, where the creative uh, process starts, I think for jazz musicians, it's learning every aspect of the tune. It's learning, you know, the melody, even if you're just playing. I mean, if I'm playing a, a rock song, you know, with some band and I'm just playing a guitar part, I still am learning the bass line and the melody and trying to incorporate how everything works in the song, even if I never really play it that way. It's, it's just ingrained in me to learn songs that way. And that comes from... from years of, of playing jazz you know you play standards and you want to learn every aspect of the song so i just allowed that process to take over for every every type of music that i play and i allowed my music to to take its own shape you know i, I mean i think that that my influences might be obvious when you hear my you know certain songs like oh yeah he's doing sort of a um, John Schofield sort of thing or whatever, and you can't you can't hide those those influences too much. I don't think, but I, you know, I just stopped worrying if somebody was going to think that I was, you know, authentically playing jazz or authentically playing a specific style. I just let let it be, and then I think the music becomes more authentic when you do it that way. Why do you love jazz? Jazz to me, is a, a deeper understanding of music. Um, you know, I, I recently heard Herbie Hancock, and, and he played songs that he's probably been playing for, you know, 50, 60 years, and he could he still makes it sound so fresh. And, you know, it, sound, it sounded like the most modern jazz you could imagine, but it also had at, at its heart, you know, the core of the, of the tra tradition from which it was born back in the early 60s. And to me, that to be able to do that with music, it's kind of addicting, you know, to, to keep going back to songs and, and to hear somebody like Herbie Hancock, who's an absolute master and, you know, aspire to someday be able to have music be such an internal language for yourself. And, and reimagine my own music or other people's music, you know, 20 years from now that, and, and make it sound as fresh as I try to make it sound now. So let me ask you this. Of all the years that you perform music and been around, what's one of the nicest things a fan has ever said to you? Uh, that's a good question. Um, you know, I've had some really, uh, I, I mean, people are very kind, uh, a lot of times it shows and I think one time there was a uh, a kid at a show who I mean I don't know how old he was he's maybe 18 or 19 and uh, he'd recently lost his father and we played uh, I can't remember what, what tune it was but we played a tune by the meters he, I don't know. His dad loved the meters, and he just came up. He was like, man, when you played that song, it made the rest of your music make so much more sense to me, and it reminded me of my, my father, who I just lost. And it was a really special moment for him. And for me and the other guys in the band, it was it just felt like we had 
it made somebody's day better or, or maybe it's, you know, we just touch somebody through just playing music in the deepest way that you could want to do it. You know what I mean? Want, want to have an effect on somebody's life and make, make them feel better in that moment. You know, the fact he opened that opened up to us and shared that was pretty special to me. You know, I, I, we, we've had enough, I've had a number of times where, when I'm playing with another artist or whatever, where people are just very uh, complimentary about how the music blends together and, you know, my guitar sound or whatever. But, uh, you know, I remember that that young man because he just was uh, very vulnerable in the moment. And, and uh, I don't think, you know, you don't go up and play like the meters and, and, you know, kind of funky jazz music, expecting somebody to to give you that reaction. So it was very special. Yeah, absolutely. So let me ask you this. This is my final question. Everybody has a version of who you are, your family, your friends, the fans that you play for. But who do you think you are? When you wake up and face the world, who are you? You know, I, I try to be pretty transparent. So, um, you know, every day I get up and, and I I kind of, have a plan in my head about how much practicing I'm going to try to get done and, you know, what else I'm going to try to accomplish that day. And, you know, I just try to focus on doing the tasks that that I feel like need to get done at the time and, I'm, you know, try to be productive and try to be honest with people about, like, somebody reached out to me and wanted my opinion about their music and just try to engage with them in the most honest and and productive way possible. I I don't know. I I guess I I don't try to focus too much about who I am. I just try to focus on what I can do um, each day, you know. Every every day is a chance to kind of get a little bit better at guitar. It's also a chance to help somebody out with their music or, you know, with the record label. There's always opportunities to do something for one of our artists. That's good. Yeah. That's good. That sums it up, man. That, that's, a, that's a good answer. It's a good way to wrap everything up. Cameron, thank you for taking some time out today. Thanks for the music, and thanks for opening up with me. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, thank you. I enjoyed talking with you. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York, Kansas City, and spots all over the globe giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Cameron for all of his stories, his honesty, and the music. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store or visit the Neon Jazz YouTube channel. And you can always get everything Neon Jazz at the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.